We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back, listeners, for a, uh, another podcast as we continue going through Hebrews. Uh, today, we're going to be going over Hebrews chapter 3. And so if you are a first-time listener, welcome. I'm thankful that you guys are with us. And um, uh, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to chapters 1 and 2, kind of give you some perspective as to where we're going, not only um, just for the flow of the chapter and contextual to the truth that's going to be on here, but just because the first word of chapter 3 is therefore. And so whenever you see therefore in scripture, you've got to always ask yourself, what's it there for? Which means you have to go back up into chapter 2 to figure it out. If you've been following along with us, then... Uh, thank you for continuing on this journey. Remember, we are going on this together. Um, I don't pre, you know, I don't, I don't pre-prepare a lot for these. Um, I don't study and, and create like this whole, you know, I, idea behind what I'm going to teach and cross references. I kind of go through this with you guys. And so we're going to see where the Lord takes us on this one. Chapter 3 is a great one. There's going to be some things that are going to be deep. Um, there's going to be some things that are going to be just a very basic, simple statement that the author of Hebrews is going to be trying to give to us and instill in us, almost as kind of a warning. This is, this is one of those passages that it's not to be taken lightly. There's some profound truths and some great promises that are in it. And ones that we have a, a tremendous privilege um, that come along with what some of what he's talking about here in chapter 3. But there also is going to be the warning uh, passage to the church. And we're gonna, that's going to make sense more in just a second. So we're going to jump right into this. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him. Just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. And so just these first two verses, there's a couple really profound type things that go on to it. One, we have a heavenly calling. It is not a calling of this world. It is not a calling in which our minds are supposed to be set on the things of this world, as Colossians 3, 1 through 3 talks on. Or as even uh, Hebrews 13, 14, when he says, um, here we have no lasting city, we seek the city that is to come. Our calling is one that is heavenly. Our mission is one that is heavenly. And our dwelling place is one that is heavenly. This is not our home. And I think too often we throw that term around home. We throw it around in a way that almost makes it seem like earth is our home instead of heaven being our home. We long for the things of earth. We don't long for heaven. And this this passage when he says, we have been called to a heavenly calling. That is what the church needs to, to kind of be reinstilled in the, the essence of who we are. Is that we have a heavenly mission that is to be lived out on earth. But our home is not earth. 
He goes on, he says, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. What's interesting is we don't always think of Jesus as an apostle. But scripture says that he was an apostle. Now, if you understand what an apostle is, uh, then this makes a lot of sense. And if you understand what Jesus' mission was here on earth, then it makes a lot of sense. Apostle simply means a sent one. It's somebody who has a message from somebody higher than them that wants to send out that message and they become a delegate or an intermediary or somebody who's an ambassador of that message. And so Jesus, being a sent one who had a message from God, that's what it means when it says that the word of God became flesh. God had a word to deliver to the people, and that word wasn't something he was just going to send through somebody. He was going to instill it in that person and then have that person give the word and be that word that he was sending. And that word essentially was this new covenant that was going to be in the blood of Jesus Christ. So Jesus was an apostle. And he's also the high priest. Now, if you have any knowledge of the Torah and understanding of Levitical law, what the the Levites were, what the priest's job was, it was to intercede on behalf of the people, to be a a go-between, if you will, and to offer the sacrifices of the people on behalf of God to make it pleasing. Um, And it's interesting because even in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that we now are a spiritual priesthood. That we as the church are the ones who offer the sacrifices, and it says, pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. And so the only way, only way that you can actually sacrifice anything that would be pleasing to God is through Jesus. That's why it says, without Jesus, all your righteous deeds, all your, your things that you do that you would consider to be good, he says, those are like filthy rags before me. Because if you aren't coming through Christ, if you're not sacrificing through the name of Christ, if you're not doing it in Christ, then it means nothing to God. That's why whenever you look out there and you say, oh, that's a good person, if they're an unsaved person, if they're an unbeliever, and you say, man, that's a good person. You know, that's just a down-to-earth, just a good person. Uh, That's not how God sees them. You see, we got to get something right. If you are not in Christ, then you are not acceptable to God, no matter how much quote-unquote, good you do in the world. I don't care. You could be the the most, in in humans' eyes, in mankind's eyes, in their viewpoint, you could be the most upstanding person, the most righteous person, if you will, on this earth. Morally good, making the right decisions, integrity, honor, and you're scum in God's eyes. Now, that might sound harsh to you because I understand John 3.16. God loves the world. Yeah, God, God loved us even in our filth. I get that. But the reality is, if you're not in Christ, you're still in filth. The only good that we can do that is pleasing and acceptable to God is that which is done through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you go through Moses and you try to keep Torah. It doesn't matter what good you do. It is only good through Jesus Christ. And He is our high priest of our confession. He goes on, he says, who is faithful to him, meaning God, who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, it's interesting that it talks about it. It says that Moses was faithful in God's house. Okay? Listen to what he says about Jesus. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. It's essentially... In chapter 1, the author here was kind of um, pitting angels 
um, against Jesus. And he says, and Jesus wins. Like, bar none, it's not even a, a, it's beyond contestation. Jesus wins. The angels had nothing on Jesus. As great as what the angels were, they had nothing on Jesus. And now he's doing the same thing to Moses. And he says, as great as what Moses was, he had nothing on Jesus. Uh, you, you could go through all the Old Testament. As great as what David was, as pure in heart as what he was, as much as a, a man after God's own heart as what David was, he had nothing on Jesus. As wise as Solomon was, he had nothing on Jesus. Because Jesus is the wisdom of God. He is the purity of God. The strength of God in man, in Samson, had nothing on the strength of God in Jesus. You see, all these things, Jesus is. And that's why it says in, in Hebrews 11.6, um, without faith it's impossible to um, please, oh, why, am I, why am I missing this one? This is like a classic verse that one of the first ones I memorized. Uh, without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists or, as it's actually broken down in the Greek, that he is. And that he rewards those who seek him or who seek him diligently. This concept is just simply stating that Moses, yeah, Moses, he came with some glory. Second Corinthians 3 talks about that concept that what Moses even brought to the people, it had glory. But there's a greater glory that surpasses even Moses, even the commandments, even the Torah. There's a glory that surpasses it that is beyond comprehension. So we don't look to those former things. That's not our, our way of access to the Father. It is now through the Apostle, the High Priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. That is how you get to the Father. You don't get through Moses. You don't go through keeping what Moses told you to keep. You get through Jesus, and that's it. We have access to God through Jesus Christ, and He has more glory than Moses or anything else that Moses brought to the people of God back then. And he goes on, and this concept of being a house is, is a pretty vital concept we're going to talk about in just a little bit. He says, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So essentially Moses served a purpose as just a servant in God's house back then, but he was to testify to the things that were coming, right? Namely, Jesus and the new covenant that's in his blood. Okay, just as, as overarching generality of it all, it's the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ and what we have now in the law of Christ, no longer under the law of Moses. This is what Galatians 3 and 4 is talking about. It says that we were under a schoolmaster or a guardian until Christ came. That guardian was put in place, that in, the, in our flesh, it would kind of govern us in our flesh to keep us corralled, to keep us moral um, in some of the things that we did in civil. But then once Christ came, or I should say when we came into Christ, we're no longer under that schoolmaster. We're no longer under that guardian. We now have been given the Spirit of God in our hearts and we've been placed in Christ at the right hand of God in heavenly places. No longer under that old guardian. You could say even the old wineskins and the old wine. We've been placed in new wine and new wineskins. It's the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. But he says, Moses was faithful as a servant to testify to the things that were coming. 
But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Not just as a servant, but as actual sonship or lineage to the deity or the bloodline of God Almighty. Moses didn't have that. Jesus does. And Moses was faithful in God's house as part of God's house. Jesus is faithful over God's house as the authority, as the governance, as the one who has the, if you will, in a, in a, in a home, he, he's, you've got the father and the mother and the children, right? And then in the hierarchy of God's plan, the father is supposed to be the one who has the, the rule over the house, okay? That's what Jesus has over us. He is now, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, God has given him all things. He's given him all things. Everything has been placed under his feet, and here's the cool thing. We've been placed in Him. So therefore, what is under His feet is under our feet because we are in Him as His hands and feet, as the body of Christ, with Christ being the head. So He is our rule. We listen to Him. And He says, and He's faithful over God's house. Not just in it, but over it. That should be some good news. As he even talks about in Hebrews chapter 1 where it says that the, the universe is upheld by the word of his power. And how much more can he make sure that things happen in our life that go according to his will and purpose for our lives. Trust him through the process. But listen to what he goes on to say. The author says this. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope until the end. Now this is one that I think a lot of um, people who would be considered Calvinistic in their ideology or in their thought process of interpreting scripture, they would look at it and say, hey, you know what, if you keep your faith all the way to the end, then you really were saved. If you don't, then you weren't. But that's not actually what this is stating, and I'm going to show you a couple reasons as to why. One is in this verse... Um, the word that's used here for are, when it says, and, and we um, are his house, you can look at it and say, well, that's a present tense word that's used there. It's the word esmen. But here's actually what it means. In the Thayer definition, it means a first person plural of, quote unquote, to be, meaning a futuristic tense. You go into the Strong's and it says, our be, to have our being, our hope in, um, that which was pre preached to us. It has this concept of even in the here and now. So what is the author trying to state? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you something real quick that's going to disprove um, definitively that this is not referencing a conditional passage as to whether or not you are saved or not. It's whether or not you will be saved in the end. This passage is saying, not only are you part of the proverbial house that God is building, because it has not been built yet, okay? I want to, uh, even in First uh, Peter 2.2, I believe is where it is. Let me turn to it real quick. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? He says you're being built into a spiritual house. Ephesians 2.22 says this. 
in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what the author here is saying is not that you are this finished product, part of God's finished house. It says, no, you're part of the process of being built into this house. And what you will be is not who you are just yet. When we built the house that we're in, um, currently, I'm not talking about the discipleship center. I'm talking about the house that we're living in as a family. Um, we moved in before that house was completed. We didn't have kitchen counters. Uh, we had been living with people for almost three years um, up to this point, and you know we were we were just ready to get into a place where we didn't have to ask permission to have somebody over for dinner. We didn't have to run things by people and have to, you know, it, it was something we could use our house as a place of ministry how we felt like the Lord was was asking us to do. So we built this simple, um, you know, home. Um, And when we moved in, we didn't have kitchen counters. We didn't have a kitchen sink. We didn't have furniture. Uh, We were sleeping on air mattresses. Um, We had the remnants of a house. We could function in it, but it wasn't what it was today. Eight years later, we now have a front porch and a back porch. We now have a wood-burning stove in there that we installed. We now have window units, which we didn't have then. We now have actual beds. Um, Granted, they were given to us, but they're actual beds that that our kids can sleep on and my wife and I can sleep on. We didn't even close in our room that we currently have. It was a shell of what it was going to be. And I think this is kind of what the author is saying. He says, look, not only are you part of this this spiritual house that's being built, but you will be in the end. That's what that word are means. So essentially you could read it as, and we are to be his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting until the end. Now, you can look at that and you say, well, well, Dwight, that's not exactly what it says. Let me just include this real quick. Notice that the author includes himself. I want you to read over that just real quick. If you're listening to that, then just listen to me again because I'm going to read it again. But if you're you're reading through your Bible, I want you to read it again. I want you to, to ask yourself, why would the author include himself if this is a text that is to try to prove the sincerity of the believer, meaning that you really are saved? Because he's including himself. So obviously this is not a text that is indicating to us that the author is trying to say, no, you know what, you're really saved if you hold. No, he says, no, 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 no. We will be part of that house in the end when it is fully built. If we hold our confession until the end. That's what the author is saying because it has to be. Because he's including himself in it. And so when you look at this passage, this word kateko means hold fast. It's the one that means to retain or to keep secure or to keep possession of. He says, and we are to be his house if indeed we keep secure or keep the possession of our confidence and our boasting and our hope firm until the end. You know, in this concept of what we are to be. I think you can find that in Romans 8, 17 through 23, or actually really 15 through 23. And you could read all of it if you wanted to, or you could just kind of bookend the front and the back end of it, and you could find what I'm talking about. In 15 and 16, he says that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons. 
And so therefore we have been brought into this house and we have privileges in this house and we've been brought into this family of God because of the spirit that is now put in us and we have been um, given that spirit of adoption. But in the Romans 8.23, Paul says that we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, this one goes unnoticed a lot, and I say that because I've heard it, I've heard it completely neglected in many sermons today. This concept that I've been given the spirit of adoption, but yet I have yet to be adopted as sons, which is why Paul says, we wait eagerly for the hope of adoption as sons. Well, why is he waiting for it if he's already gotten it? That doesn't make any sense. What makes sense is, is that we have been given the promises of God through Jesus Christ. He has promised us that if we hold our confidence and our boasting and our hope, meaning in Jesus Christ, who is our hope of glory, you want to be glorified in the end, you're going to have to be in Christ. That's what that passage means in Colossians. That's why Romans 8, 17 says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This concept is one that we have received the promises of God. We have been given entrance into the privileges of God. And we have been brought in um, into the purpose of God in our life. But what is going to be in the end will be ours if we continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that is in us. That's actually scripture, Colossians 1, 21 through 23 that I just quoted to you. This concept that the author is bringing out, it says, guys, Jesus has been given so much more glory than Moses. He's been given all things have been placed under his feet. And it will be in yours here in this life. And it will be in the end if you continue in the faith. If you don't give up. Listen to what he goes on to take. Because he's, he's going to actually in, um, enforce this concept a little bit more by using the, what happened to the Old Testament saints. The people of God of old. He's going to use them as an example. And then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 10 and we're going to see the exact same thing that Paul used. He says, therefore, because we have these promises, because we are brought into the house of God under the headship of Jesus Christ, and because we are to be that finished house in the end, as we're being built together into that finished house. What I am now is not what I am to be. That's scripture. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says in Psalm 95, 7-11, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. Notice the patience that God had with them. Therefore, because well, in the days of the testing... The refining, they rebelled. They hardened their hearts. You're going to see the same thing in chapter 5 when he's talking to the brotherhood, right? And chapter 5, verse 11, about this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles, the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. He says you've become dull of hearing. You're believers, but you've become dull of hearing. The same thing. The heart had become hardened to the voice of God and to the things of God. 
And God was patient with them in the days of the wilderness. But he got provoked with that generation and said, they go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, which is not a past tense of they never knew my ways. Obviously, they knew his ways. If you know anything about the history of Israel and the Hebrews, you're going to know that they knew his ways. God made it emphatically clear on Mount Sinai what his ways were. But they weren't acquainted with his ways. They didn't walk in his ways. The term is gnosko. They did not know him or did not know his ways. Same term that's used when it says when Adam knew Eve. They didn't know my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Even though they'd been delivered from Egypt, even though that the power of sin, if you will, had been delivered in their life, proverbially speaking, because that's what Egypt represents, is the coming out of sin. They were still in this wilderness of Egypt, this territory that belonged to Egypt. They hadn't crossed over into the promised land yet, because that wasn't able to happen through just Joshua, as we're going to find out in chapter 4. That could only come truly through Jesus. And yet, they were still considered the people of God in this moment. Listen to what he goes on to say. And then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. Which is apostemi, the Greek word. It means to withdraw, to remove, to desert, or to be faithless to from the living God. Let me just read that one again. Take care, brothers. Notice who he's, who he's identifying here. He's not take care, you know, um, you unbelievers. Take care, brothers, the Adelphos. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. Notice the we. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Notice again, he includes himself. He doesn't say, for you have come to share in Christ. If indeed you hold your original confidence firm to the end, he includes himself. Is he questioning whether or not he really was saved? Is that really what it is? I don't think so. I don't think the author is stating that at all. I think he's simply stating, look guys, what we are and what we are to be has been sealed and promised in Christ. And we have come to share in all that God has to give to us in Christ. If we hold that original confidence that we had in the, in the beginning, if we hold that to the end, we will get what is promised. That is why Hebrews 10.36 says, We have need of endurance so that after doing the will of God, we will receive what is promised. Hebrews 6.11-12 talks about this anchor of our soul, that we have reason to hope that God is faithful, that He will do what He has promised to do in Christ. He will give us what He has promised to give us in Christ in the end. And we can put our anchor down in that storm, no matter what waves rage in our against our boats, that no matter what winds sail up against us, we can keep that anchor down in that ocean, on that bedrock, and we can stake our claim to it, knowing that God is faithful to those who are faithful to him. That's good news. 
That is good news. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. Because remember what he's, what he's doing here. He's using the Old Testament saints as a means to give us an example of what God will do even to us as his people today. Uh, you could go and read chapter 10, 1 through, four, 1 through 5. And you could find he's basically setting it up that all this was an example of old. Um, Paul even talked about it in chapter 9, the very end of it. He says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. And then he goes on and he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. And then he starts talking about the Old Testament um, people of God. And he says, it was actually Christ that they drank from. It was actually Christ that they followed. They didn't know it. Listen to what he says in verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us. These things of old that took place in the Old Testament people of God. Those things happened to them as an example to us that we, Paul includes himself, might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In Exodus 32, you can see that also again in Luke chapter 12. He says, we must not, we, we must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Numbers 25, 1 through 9, Deuteronomy 8, 15. We must not put Christ to the test. What did he say back in Hebrews chapter 3? When he says, uh, blah, 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 in verse 9, where your fathers put me to the test. What did Paul say? We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, lest anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Paul includes himself in that warning of, guys, I understand I cannot put Christ to the test. And if I arrogantly think that I can stand on that last day before him, when I put him to the test and I engaged in the same thing that the people of old engaged in and they were destroyed, why would I think that I wouldn't get disqualified from running this race? Paul says at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, 7-8, he says, I've kept the faith, I've fought the fight, I've finished the race. Henceforth, or because of my endurance through the grace that God supplied to me and my humility and faith, because of that, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which God will award to all those who have loved His appearing. He says, God... God's promised all these things. All we have to do is rely in humility and faith on the grace that God will give to us to live this life out in the way that He's called us to live it. If you make a mistake, repent from it, seek His forgiveness, and move forward. It's the confession of Christ as Lord of your life that you are needing to hold on to and the very thing that Satan will try to take from you. He is looking to steal, kill, and destroy. And He wants to take that confession from you because He knows that confession is where the security lies for the believer. Listen to what He says. I think it's in 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me see. I'm going to flip to it just real quick. 
Nope, in First Peter. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Your confession of Christ as Lord over your life, the head of your house, if you will, that is what holds it as you keep that confession until the end. But it's the very thing Satan's going to come after. And I've seen him do it. I've seen him try and try and try. And on a few occasions, I've seen him succeed. Of causing somebody to apostatize from the faith of denying Christ as the Lord of their life. After having received him. Now we can get into all kinds of stuff. But the reality is... This is what the text is stating. We can try to do some circular reasoning around it. And we can try to to talk around things. But the reality is this is what the word is stating. Will there be people who genuinely were not saved? And they thought there were absolutely. Matthew 7 says it. But does it mean that it is just a cut and dry case to where every single person it will be like that? No. I don't believe that for one second. We're going to get into that in Hebrews chapter 6. But we kind of got into it here. He says, look, guys, you have a share in Christ and you will have that share with him in the end. If you hold your original confidence and your hope in Christ until the end. And at that moment, that's when Christ, who is your hope. That's when you get glorified. Matthew 10.22, the one who endures to the end will be saved. You can look in Hebrews 10.36 again, that we have need of endurance. Author includes himself. So that after having done the will of God, we'll receive what is promised. First John 2, I forget what the verse is. I think it's like 26. It says something to the effect of, and this is what he has promised, eternal life. Galatians 6, 7 through 10 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. If we sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you reap eternal life. And then he says something really interesting in that. He says, And we will reap, Paul includes himself, if we do not give up. This is what the text is stating. We can't get around it. You have a responsibility in the promise that God has given to you through Christ. And that is simply to endure in your confession of who He is until the end. And the works that you supplement to that confession, or we'll just call it faith. The works that you supplement to that faith, they will either strengthen your faith or they will weaken it. Your disobedience or your obedience to the will of God in Christ Jesus and in this new covenant... It will either strengthen or weaken that faith. And if you supplement too much disobedience to that faith, eventually you could run the risk of apostatizing, as Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 talks about, and as we're even going to get into in just a second. So he goes on, he says, make sure you're taking care, in verse 12, brothers. I don't want you to fall away from the living God. I don't want you to test Christ as the old saints did, as the old people of God did. When they tested God in the days of the wilderness. He says today if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Was it not the people of God. Who God delivered through the hand of Moses. Out of Egypt. 
He took them out of their slavery to sin. He brought them out of that. And they were rejoicing. They were dancing. There was jubilee that was that was arising among the people as they did even cause a feast to be done in, in honor of that in the jubilee. But then they allowed their hearts to get hardened. And they rebelled against God's ways. They knew them, but they rebelled. And they did what ought not to be done. He says, was it not those who sinned? I'm sorry, 17. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now that Greek word unbelief is the word apostia. It means unfaithfulness or weakness of faith or the want of. You see, it wasn't the disobedience necessarily that caused God to be provoked with them for those 40 years and ultimately say, you're not going to enter my rest. It was their unbelief. That was what caused the people. And this is what Satan is after. He's not necessarily just after getting you to disobey, though he is. That's his small game. That's not his end game. Ultimately, he knows the only thing that can truly damage God and the glory of God from what he wants to get out of your life is when you renounce the claim of Christ over your life. Because he knows it's over. Go read Hebrews 6, 4-6. through 6, and He says it's impossible to restore that person to repentance. It's impossible. Once they have shared in the Holy Spirit, which is a Greek word, we'll get into it in a couple chapters, metekos, it means you become a partner or an associate with. You become one with someone. Right? That's what the word means. He says it's impossible for those who have become one with the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to restore them to repentance if they apostatize. That that's what Hebrews six four through six is stating, and we'll get into that more in depth in a couple. Uh, well, in a couple chapters, I don't know exactly when it's going to be. But the reality is, guys, this is a warning passage. Such privilege to say that we have been brought into this house of God, and we have the privileges and the perks of being part of the family of God. But what it's going to be in the end has not yet happened. It has not yet appeared. And if we want to be part of that, as right now we're being built into a spiritual house, a dwelling place for the Lord Almighty, we are being built. If we want to be part of the finished work, if we want to be part of everything, then we're going to have to stay in Christ. As he talked about that word, kateko, we're going to have to keep secure or keep possession of. As it talks about even in Jude one twenty one, it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. You have a responsibility. And it's one that should not be taken lightly. Keep your confidence of Christ as Lord of your life. And as Lord over all. Lord of lords and King of kings. Not just something you say in a song. Not just something you throw up on banners in your church. I'm talking about is that banner being, being flown as a flag in your soul. Is he the Lord of lords and the King of kings in your heart and in your mind? And if he is, then keep him there. Keep him on that throne until the day that God calls you home. And if you do that, by the grace that God will supply, as he talks about, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13. 
If you do that by the grace that God will so abundantly supply, then you will find His promise in the end and you'll be part of that finished work, the house that God is building right now. And so, believer, I don't know how else to instruct you on this passage other than there's a lot of hope in it because it's not going to be simply on your merit. It's not going to be simply just on your efforts or your good deeds. It's going to be on Christ and you holding your position in Him until the end. And if you do that, you receive all the promises that God... That's why it says that all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Him. Everything is about your position. And so your purpose in this life is to live a heavenly calling, to be mission-minded, to not think about the things of this world and set your mind on those things, but to keep it set on heaven and to seek the city that is to come. And to follow Christ as He has commanded for us to follow Him. You hold that position until the end. You will receive everything that God has promised. And so, we'll go on with chapter 4 just a little bit. And I hope this was encouraging and convicting, challenging, but also informative for you. And um, keep studying the Word, guys. Keep studying it and make sure that you have that life in you because it is a word of life. Y'all be blessed.